Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast. I'm Shane Phillips. Today's episode is a very special one to me. With Pavo as my co-host, we're getting into the weeds of Singapore's public housing program with Professor Chua Benghuat, an expert in the field and a former director of research for Singapore's Housing and Development Board. Singapore's public housing program is extremely well regarded in international circles, and if there's one thing you've heard about it, it's probably that 85% of its residents own their own public housing unit. The government is walking a constant tightrope, balancing the need to produce an adequate supply of affordable new housing with demands to let housing prices rise so that owners can build up their wealth and have enough resources to afford retirement. These competing goals are also demanded of governments in the US and Canada and elsewhere, but I can't think of a single place that tries to meet them both as faithfully and aggressively as Singapore does. They are always facing new challenges, of course, and their policies are always evolving in response. And we're gonna spend a lot of this interview talking about what that looks like in practice. The lesson here is not that other places should adopt exactly the same policies as Singapore, and we will cover quite a few reasons that probably isn't feasible even if it were desirable. But there is so much to learn and a lot of inspiration we can take from their example. This episode is longer than usual, but it is packed with history and insights from Professor Chua. The Housing Voice Podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and we receive production support from Claudia Bustamante and Olivia Arena. You can send me your feedback or show ideas at shanephillips at ucla.edu, and be sure to tell your friends about us if you like the show. Okay, on to the interview. I am very excited to introduce our guest for this second episode of our second season, Professor Chua Banghuat. Professor Chua is in the Department of Sociology at the National University of Singapore and Yale and U.S. College, and he's also the former director of research for the Housing and Development Board, which builds and manages the overwhelming majority of public housing and therefore the overwhelming majority of all housing in Singapore. While reading up on his background, I also learned that he didn't start out in sociology or urban studies, but actually studied biology and biochemistry during his undergraduate years, which is similar to my own background uh, with a bachelor's in biochemistry. So the pipeline from uh, biochemistry to urban planning is very real. Professor Chua, we are really thrilled to have you here to talk with us about Singapore's public housing program. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Happy to actually have a chance to actually share the Singapore Public Housing Program with a wider audience than those who specialize in Singapore itself. We are very excited about that as well. My co-host this time is Pavo, our international housing policy aficionado. Welcome, Pavo. Thanks, Jane. And welcome, Professor Chua. Thanks again for for doing this. And good to see you again. We had some technical difficulties yesterday. <laughs> and so some of this is uh, rehashing, but it's super interesting stuff. So uh, I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, this is uh, we had a bit of a dry run yesterday when I we talked for about 40 minutes before I realized I did not hit record and broke out into a <laughs> profuse sweat, uh, just overheated immediately out of shame. Uh, but the upside is we, we, we're going to have an even better interview this time around. And, uh, so I do want to say thank you, Professor Chua, for being so gracious, agreed to speak 
yet again the next day and we're going to start from scratch and, and do an hour and a half long interview here. So we really, really do appreciate it. No, I think it was a good trial run. <laughs> okay. So we always start by asking our guests to give us a tour of their hometown or a place that's special to them. Pabo and I are very much looking forward to a tour of Singapore or some parts of it. What are some of the must-sees for a couple of housing researchers like us if we were visiting Singapore? Yeah, I think then for, uh, for urban planners and, and, and housing specialists, Singapore is actually a great place to visit. As you know, it's an island nation, uh, about 760 square kilometers at low tide, as the prime minister would say. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and it's because of, because of the size of the island, it's a thoroughly, thoroughly planned city. Every inch of the land is either already developed and or has already potential use uh, being allocated. So the place to start will be at the Urban Redevelopment Authority, which actually has a 3D model of the entire island, including, including planned future spaces and so on. And it's an extremely green island because the greening of the country is intentional in the sense that it's actually highly economically motivated in that the first prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, had thought of Singapore as an oasis in the region where globally mobile uh, managers and, and, and you know, uh, business people would come here, come to Singapore as sort of the green lung of the region because the, the rapid development of the region see a lot of gridlock cities and, and pollution and so on. So this will be the place not only to rest and you know rest and recreation, but also the place to establish uh, operational business center. So Singapore is actually a place of regional centers of a lot of multinational corporations. Mm -hmm. So it's highly planned, and I and the place to visit, of course, as I said, to start with the URA, the Urban Redevelopment Authority. Visually, the place is practically dominated by public housing, so you would have to visit an old, an old public housing estate and the most recent one. Uh, the most recent one is actually Pongo, which is very well designed. It uses a lot of, it's because it's by the water. So you, it incorporated the water element very well. And also is very up to date in, 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 in high technology. So it's being touted as the smart town and where a lot of, big data of daily usage is being gathered uh, and analyzed uh, for climatic control and other kinds of usage. In fact, the government has been inviting high-tech companies to come and set up their, operation, their testing operation in Pongo because the big data will be made available to them. So that, that's, that's really important. And of course, Singapore is known for its street food. So you obviously you have to go to what we call a hawker center, where it's a gathering of food stalls. Um, the richness of food is because we are a multiracial society with a mix of Southeast Asian, Indian, Chinese, and Western cuisine, and you know the creativity of the local cooks in terms of hybrid uh, food. So that you know that's that. There's also fortunately. In the 1960s, early 60s and 70s, the urbanization of the entire island has bulldozed down 
a lot of uh, existing settlements. But fortunately, there's three different ethnic enclaves that has been preserved. Uh, there's a Chinatown, there's a, what is called a Little India, and then there's a Muslim Arab section, which has all 19th century housing, mm. uh, shop houses that are being restored. It's, a, it's somewhat touristy, uh, gentrified touristy, but it's worth looking at the historical you know, architecture as such. And then, of course, there's the waterfront, uh, which is where the colonial city started. And most of the new imperialist nations, I mean, buildings are still being used, adapted, reused into museums and art galleries. And a new downtown, a new financial district is being built adjacent to the, to the old commercial town on reclaimed land. So I think those, those, those are the you know, main highlights or two or three days. Uh, yeah. I think that would yeah, take a few days at least. Yeah. Okay, so the paper that we are discussing is in Housing Studies, and it's titled Navigating Between Limits, The Future of Public Housing in Singapore. Similar to our episode with Kathy O'Regan in Season 1, this isn't so much a, a study with a complicated methodology and regressions and so forth, as it is a, a history, including an analysis of the politics and the policy behind Singapore's public housing program, and the very complex interests that the program is trying to balance. The paper is from way back in 2014, nearly a decade old at this point, but I first read it maybe three or four years ago, and it has really stuck with me. More than anything else I've read on the subject, this article helped broaden my understanding of state-led public housing provision, both the strengths and the weaknesses of, of that approach. On the one hand, Singapore's political leadership has done a very effective job of providing an affordable home to almost every citizen in the country, and one they're able to own and build wealth in. But on the other hand, this occurred in a political context that is, I think, pretty unimaginable here in the U.S. Planning and development is extremely centralized in Singapore, and that centralization can give us some really unique and valuable insights into how housing markets and housing policies interact. Those kinds of interactions are just really hard to observe in more decentralized contexts like those found in the U.S., here in the U.S., we have multiple levels of government that aren't well-coordinated and that are often even at odds in terms of their goals. Plus, we have a lot of private actors like banks and developers and landlords who exert a lot of influence as well. In Singapore, you have just one government that does really everything, not just what we have multiple tiers of government doing here, but also taking on a lot of the roles that are usually reserved for the private sector in other countries. Even if this isn't a system we could transplant into the U.S. wholesale, and I don't think it is, we can learn a lot by watching the Singaporean government move different levers and try to balance the conflicting goals they have of housing affordability on the one hand and wealth building through home value appreciation on the other. So that is why I think our audience should care about this topic, not that they probably need any convincing. But now let's talk about how Singapore's housing market works and um, how its public housing program works in particular. I'll start with a quote from the conclusion of the paper. You say, quote, Singapore's national public housing program is one of the few success stories in universal provision of housing around the world. Tell us what that program has provided to Singapore residents and give us sort of an overview of what the housing market looks like for them. I think that the the success of the program depends on several 
elements, and one of which, as you have mentioned, is the the single tier political system that we have, because mm-hmm. it's a very small island, and the entire island is conceptualized as one single planning unit. So it's not divided into urban, suburban, or and rural because we basically have no rural area at all. Just so people can conceptualize this a little bit, Singapore's population is around 5.3 million people, and it's 60% of the land area of just the city of Los Angeles. So, you know, imagine if the city of Los Angeles was its own country, and you're kind of on the path toward understanding sort of the, the setup here. Yeah. Right. So the so essentially, you know, is a high is an is an totally urbanized island, and the efficiency of the planning actually is highly dependent on the fact that it's a single tier government. The ruling party has been governing Singapore since independence or before independence in 1959, which means it has been in power for 65 years, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, from the outside. It's an incredible, I mean, it's something that is quite unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. yeah. So one needs to explain the longevity of this government to a certain extent. And I think it's precisely because it has been in power for 65 years and taken out you know, a lot of decision unto itself rather than widely with wide consultation. And also the personality of the first prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, who was prime minister for 30 years. I mean, all those elements combined that results in Singapore constantly being addressed as an authoritarian state. But it's an authoritarian state that is not conventionally one that it, we, when we think of authoritarian states, we tend to think of military-backed, violent, corrupt uh, politics, uh, political systems. Whereas in Singapore, if you come to Singapore, for all of his so-called authoritarianism, you don't even see police on the street, let alone soldiers. So the system runs, there is, uh, ever since the 1950s, there's always been periodic four to five years general elections. So the government is legitimately elected by popular franchise. And in Singapore, voting is compulsory mm. rather than elective. You have to vote. So the so election day is always a public holiday. So everyone has a chance to vote. Uh, so you're not kept away from, you're not deprived of the right to vote because you have to work or, or such things. It's a public national holiday. And there is uh, there are politi- multiple political parties in competition. And the interesting thing is that there is always a minimum of about 30% of the electorate that voted against the People's Action Party. But this 30%, and at one point up to 40%, uh, voted against the party. But the the non-PAP votes doesn't appear in parliament because we do not have a proportional representation system. Hmm. Otherwise, Hmm. you would actually see that there are oppositions. But because it is a British parliamentary system in which 50% plus one wins the seat. So the result is that the government, the, you know, the PAP tends to win more than 60% of the seats in spite of the fact that there is a 40% or 30 to 40% vote against it. 
that doesn't appear. So the parliament ends up being, you know, at least 60, 70% PAP, uh, sometimes is in fact greater than that. Uh, at certain point, it, it was complete monopoly in the parliamentary power because none of the opposition party got voted in. So in that sense, I mean, the single party government actually has fairly high political legitimacy because of its popular vote. Now, part of the popularity, part of the popular political support electorally is the result of its, of its successful public housing program. Because if you look around the region, Singaporeans are the best house people in all of Asia or, or even beyond Asia. So, and property owning has a certain, you know, conservative political tendencies. Homeowners tend to vote status quo if the status quo is working to their benefit in -hmm. terms of Mm -hmm. rising housing price, right? Just to protect their private interests, the tendency will be to vote for status quo rather than change the The home voter hypothesis is an international phenomenon, right? Yeah. So the housing system is... You know, in its ability to deliver housing or home ownership up to you know eighty five percent of the population is a very significant. It's a it's actually fundamental to the electoral success of the government. Yeah, I mean, I was reflecting on the comparison to Mexico actually because the the pre the Mexican ruling party for seventy years until the year two thousand was often called the perfect dictatorship because it was democratically elected, right? But in contrast, and then we'll maybe get into it, how they, they have a provident fund similar to Singapore in, in Mexico, but it hasn't been very successful. And the PRI wasn't very successful at kind of managing urban development and quality of life in the same way as, as the Singaporean government was. So I think that that caveat about, you know, maintaining a democratically elected authoritarianism, it works as long as you're running the country well, right? Yeah. And, and actually, the irony is precisely that because... In order to stay in power, it actually had to be very responsive to demand, right? I mean, and actually able to, you know, absorb the grievances from the ground and act accordingly. So one of the, one of the important uh, quality of government, apart from single-tier efficiency, is that it's an, it is an extremely non-corrupt government. And, and that's really important because corruption is endemic in most post-colonial societies. So it actually stands out. Uh, so for all of those reasons, in spite of the sort of, you know, question of his authoritarianism, it doesn't get a lot of flack from uh, internationally for being authoritarian. Right, yeah. It's not treated like a, I think the word you used before was a pariah yeah. state. Yeah, yeah. 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 What has that led to on the housing side? You mentioned an 85% homeownership rate. That's... Yeah. Basically, all public housing, right? Right. So the 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 housing the, the housing situation is that the ability to provide public housing depends on two very important elements. First is the ability of inexpensive land. Mm-hmm. If the if the state has to pay market value for land, it will not be possible to build public housing at that scale. Secondly, is an efficient mortgage system that is available. Uh, readily to ho- uh, for homeowners, and so the land, the Singapore government owns ninety percent of the land in the country through three different processes. First, 
at the point of independence, the British colonial government transferred all its land holdings to the independent Singapore government. So it inherited what is called crown land. Secondly, as I mentioned before, there's extent, there's been extensive reclamation of the coast since the 1970s, including the amalgamation of very of small islands into larger pieces of mm. uh, land. And thirdly, through a very draconian <laughs> uh, land acquisition policy in which the government is empowered to acquire any piece of land that it deems uh, essential or necessary to national development purposes. And the compensation rate is determined by the statute or market, whichever is lower. So through the 1970s, through the 1970s, land has been acquired at extremely low prices, uh, as low as 50 cents for a square foot. Wow. So land is available inexpensively. And secondly, uh, the mortgage system is really the really unique system. That several countries have tried to develop the same scheme, but actually never succeeded. And this is called the Central Provident Fund. The British government has, did not develop a national pension. As a colonial government, it didn't really care too much about the future of the, of the British subjects. So just before independence, we developed what is called the Central Provident Fund, which is effectively a social security saving system. Every wage earner in Singapore must compulsorily con uh, save a certain percentage of their monthly income with the central as the Central Provident Fund. It is extracted at the employment source. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and employers contribute either equal or le less a proportion of the savings. So it started modestly at about 5% savings monthly. And then, but as the economy expands and wealth increase, the savings rate also increased in tandem as a way of withdrawing cash out of the market to control inflation tendencies. And, and this was, this was a, the mandatory rate increased. It wasn't just yes. that people chose to save more. It was that they were required to. Yeah, it is, it's, right. it's compulsory. If you're self-employed, you have the option to either save or not. But most self-employed do actually set up a system because it's tax exempt. So effectively, and you know, at the point of withdrawal, there is no gains tax either. So there's a certain very high advantage, even though it's paying like only 4% interest. In fact, the savings rate is, it, the interest rate is a lot higher given its mm, tax okay. exempt status, right? So at, at, by 1984, the savings rate was 25% from the worker and 25% from the employer. So this is a huge amount of savings where you cannot touch until retirement at, 60, at 55 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And actually, it also becomes a very large sum of money for the government to handle because, you know, I mean, you can imagine monthly is a huge accumulation of the hundreds of thousands of workers, everyone contributing 50%. The management of that sum is phenomenal. Right. And you don't want to just 
put it under the the mattress or just you know let it sit there you want to do something with it while it's sitting there and That's not exactly. being dispersed yeah so no institutions can actually handle that amount of money actually so one way was to allow the allow singaporeans to make pre retirement withdrawals of that uh, 65% of that savings to pay for their housing mm-hmm. to pay for public housing as down payment and as for a monthly mortgage payment. So if you're, pub- if you're buying a public housing flat, right, the public housing authority, the housing and development board carries the mortgage and the CPF pays to the housing board directly on your behalf. So you own a public housing flat in a very cashless manner because you don't even touch, you don't even have to write a check for your mortgage uh, because it's it's between those two government institutions. Mm-hmm. There's no bank involved. Yeah. So there's no there's no commercial uh, financial institution involved in the mortgage system. Mm-hmm. The mortgage is completely handled by those two institutions, and because it's cashless, and it doesn't affect the consumption, the routine consumption uh, level of the citizens themselves, right? Many Singaporeans actually do not know how much they pay for their housing because they don't see a monthly statement. I'm curious, actually, I can understand the logic behind letting people draw from their retirement account early for like a down payment for a home because, yeah. you know, you're making a return on that investment and and it allows you to, to, to buy it earlier. What's the logic for allowing people to make their mortgage payments out of the CPF as well? Because that doesn't seem like the same, like, why not just have people pay out of their paychecks and and let them or require them to keep the money, the other money in their CPF so that the government can do other things with it so that it's earning the, you know, 4% interest rate. Why why do both of them rather than just the, the down payment? Two things. One is that if if the citizens have to pay out of their pocket monthly for their mortgage, then the wage level would have to go up by a lot. Mm. And Singapore's competitiveness is actually at the wage level also. Okay, so I do think that is important. That is that is really important context that like... Yeah. And that's part of why this asset building through the home is so important is it's sort of to make up, not just to make up for the lack of a, a pension system like social security, like a guaranteed income system like social security here in the US, but also to make up for having these low wages, which they want to preserve to remain economically competitive in their region. Exactly. So, so, so wages has to, you know, would have to go up. And at the same time, the national reserve accumulation through the CPS will balloon out to the point where it's quite unmanageable. Mm. So they actually want the money flowing out. It's just too exactly. much. They want okay, the money okay. to come out at the same time, yeah. right? And already, even under that system, the CPF basically, the CPF accumulation is transferred to the government in terms of bonds. The government sells security bonds with the CPF to use up that money. And the, the money that is accumulated through the CPF is part of it is used to precisely fund the housing program and infrastructure development mm-hmm. within the country. So Singapore is one of the unique sort of uh, post-colonial society that has no international debt. Mm-hmm. All the development is self-financed with the government borrowing money from the people. 
rather than That's external agencies. And was that was that always the case? I mean, I, I think it's fascinating. Like, I know Japan had a postal savings bank that they used, you know, people's savings to yeah. do big development projects and gave the people a return on their investments. Was the CPF yeah. always split in that way where the money was also used for other projects? So the money is used both for national, for, you know, internal development, but even that can't use up the money. So the money is now in in a soft uh, uh, a government sovereign wealth fund called the Government mm-hmm. Investment Corporation, which actually invests in long-term equities and also in international money market. Interesting. So the return that the return that is gained from the investment of the Government Investment Corporation is what pays the interest to right. the citizens. Makes right? sense. Yeah. So so. So, yeah, so part of the national wealth built up is from the collection. And it's fascinating how that, I mean, it was, was it chiefly a way to to prevent inflation? Or once this fund started growing, do you think the government also liked the investment part? (laughs) The CPF now does a whole number of things. First of all is housing, right? Then a certain portion, portion now is saved as a medical savings fund for hospitalization purposes. And at least a small part of it has to be retained as retirement fund so that it's not completely depleted in use. So given that the land, then the cost of housing can be controlled, given the efficient CPF mortgage arrangement, the home ownership rate went up from like 14% in the early 60s to 70% in 70s. By, by middle 80s, 85% of the people who lived in public housing holds a 99-year lease. Mm-hmm. Now, I need to explain what is the 99-year lease. <laughs> in effect, the reason why it's a lease is because the land is state-owned. So if you buy a flat, you don't own the land, right? And the lease... As in all lease, lease is actually effectively a rent. But in the, in the long 99-year lease, you pay the 99-year lease at one go at the point of purchase. And so, so, so it becomes like a mortgage system that you're buying a house where you pay you know, the price of the house and then you progressively pay as you go after that. Just so I'm clear, it's sort of your your down payment you could call it but maybe that's not the right word you you, you buy the 99 year lease you just right. pay the full price of it right. but your mortgage is not related to the lease exactly it's what's actually paying for the the unit itself is that correct yes so so what happens is you if you if you buy the 99 year lease right there's an upfront payment of 10% or 20% depending on the contract and then the rest is mortgaged Okay. So so it is combined. In my head it was like the 99-year lease and the unit they are inseparable basically and so it's just one yeah. price for all of it. And yes. okay, so you're paying 10% down and then the mortgage is yeah. paying the rest over time. Right. Okay. And with the 99-year lease and with this particular arrangement, the buyer of the 99-year lease is effectively has all the rights of a owner of the flat. Mm-hmm. Owner of the property. So you have, even though it's lease, it's actually equivalent to ownership. Right. It's just not permanent. Yeah. You have the, you have the right to, of use. You are free to use. You are free to sell. 
And at year 100, do you have to repurchase? What what will be the well, price to release at yet. year 100? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we, we don't know yet because no no flats have reached the 99 year. Right, right. Point. But is there is there not contractual language? Is that TB, TBD once that comes up, or is there a is there a plan for what happens? So no, that's a political issue that is being deferred. Mm. It has started to come up <laughs> because the plan. oldest the oldest housing flat is now uh, about fifty years old. Okay. Some of them has passed the midpoint of ninety nine years. So it's going to be an issue that keep, that will come up. And currently, mm-hmm. there's still a long runway to figure out how to patch. Right. But it is, it is an issue in the back burner at this point. Yeah. Right. And we will come back. To, we'll discuss a little bit more about how the the lease is monetized and how people sell right. it as it's right. as it's you know as the time is running out, all those kinds of things. But you wanted to introduce this to explain a, a bigger concept, right? Right. So effectively, locally, all right. It's all known as home ownership rather than leaseholding. And in fact, because the government owns all the land, 90% of the land, the new new development by private developers effectively are also on 99 years because they buy land from the government Mm, on a 99-year lease. So when we now, when in Singapore, when you refer to a private condominium, there are also 99-year lease condominiums rather than freehold. The 10 to 12% ownership in perpetuity of the land, it is now so expensive that unless you have inherited, unless your parents or grandparents have actually bought the land, you know, pre-1960s or up to 1980s, you are not able to actually, and if you're a wage earner, it's unlikely you will ever own a house on the ground. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's in perpetuity. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's fascinating how this system from the from the British royals has uh, through Hong Kong also gone all of mainland China, right? Is is ninety nine right. year leasehold properties as well? Yeah, and Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government technically owns the entire the land on mm-hmm. the entire island, and they also sell land for housing, but the Hong Kong government derives its annual revenue from land sale. Right. So they allow the private sector to capitalize on the real estate market mm-hmm. rather than use the land to build public housing and yep. control the sales of housing. Well, they have, a, they have a big incentive for land prices to keep going up because that means <laughs> exactly. they get to sell them. For because more, right? that's where yeah. their money comes from. Yeah. And as a result, the real estate market in Hong Kong is tightly controlled by six or seven very big developers who have mm. huge amount of political influence on urban development decisions. Well, if we can, let's get into a little more of the details of how this all works. So, you know, the the Housing and Development Board or HDB, they build the homes. Singapore residents are able to draw from their mandatory savings in the, the Central Provident Fund or CPF to purchase these 99-year leaseholds and, and also pay those off over time with their mortgage. Uh, the money is all what you you know called a, a closed loop within the government, basically. But I think we, we'd love to hear more about just this process, uh, especially the home building and everything. So I guess I can start off here first. How does HDB decide how many flats, how many new flats to build in a given year? How many rooms each unit will have? 
how they'll be priced. Uh, you know, mo we mostly leave this all to the market here in the U.S. And that approach, of course, has has its own flaws. Um, but it seems challenging to reliably forecast these future needs. And, you know, if, if the HDB fails at this, there's no one else there to pick up the slack, right? <laughs> yeah, actually, it's a, it is in some ways a very difficult operation. The flats are for sale ranges from two bedroom with sitting room and sitting room and kitchen are taken uh, are a given, right? So when we talk mm -hmm. about rooms, we usually talk. So there's two bedrooms, three bedrooms. So there's no there's no one bedrooms, much less studios. No, there there there. I'll come to that. So normally okay. <laughs> that's that, right? Now those are for sale. Then there is a rental flat because you know there is a very low income level, aging uh, singles and so. On. Got it. Currently, there's about 1.1 million public housing flats, of which about 60,000 are rental flats. And the rental flats are the smallest flats available. It's one room or two rooms, meaning one room, one bedroom, one sitting room, kitchen given, right? So, so the smallest room are actually largely for rental. But now with the aging society, Families with who, who are empty nest families are encouraged to actually downgrade from their large flat to two-room new flats So because it's empty nest, right? So just one way of conserving land is to encourage those families, empty nest families, to actually downgrade to a smaller space with a much shorter lease. They don't have to buy 99 years. They can buy from 30 to 45 years, which means the buy-in cost has been severe, severely reduced to make it affordable. And so that, that was part of the retirement plan. We'll come to that. Okay, so we have three-room, four-room, five-room flats, basically. How many, what is the quantum to be built every year? It's a really tricky question. And the HDB doesn't always get it right. Because in the past, up to 2000, somewhere around 2005 or so, the HDB builds in advance of demand. They project the demand from past trends and they will you know, build up in, uh, expecting the market, the demand to be there. Mm -hmm. But in 2005, because of some economic downturn, uh, they were stuck with a surplus of about 100,000 flat to, be, to get rid of. Quickly. That's, yeah, that's a lot when there were probably less than a million total flats yeah. in existence. So at that time. they need to they need to sell that quickly, especially the high end ones was hard to get rid of. So as a result of that, they have switched to the switched the uh, building program to what is now built on demand or built to order. What is in the sense that they will announce a release of the number of flats to be built, but construction will not start until 70% has been pre-sold. And so rather than having this problem where you might have overbuilt and that might, you know, the prices might fall, instead it's this, you know, you have the opposite problem where you might have these long waiting lists and demand yeah. might shoot up faster than expected and prices will go up quickly. Yeah. So it's it's sort of one or the other and trying to get right in that sweet spot, I'm sure, is, is yeah. a, a really difficult. Yeah, and part of the, the build-to-order is precisely the length of waiting time. Because there's mm -hmm. no flat, no surplus flat waiting for you, right? 
I'm curious, you know, we're, we've talked about the the 85% of people, of, of citizens and, and permanent residents who own homes. Who's who's left over? And in particular, what does life look like and what does the housing situation look like for low-income Singapore residents? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really important issue. Uh, as I said, there are about 60,000 rental units. Those 60,000 is actually, would be like re- the real poor of, the success story of Singapore, right? I mean, Singapore's projection to the world is this, you know, a poster boy of global capitalism. Those 60,000 are made up of two categories of people. One is aging singles, uh, early migrants into Singapore in the 50s who are now in their, you know, 80s or 70s and 80s who who never marry, who are single. They are in rental flats and they have they have to share with another single person in a one room flat. Mm. The second category are lowly low educated single mother with children. Their ability to earn income is very low. The during the aged is no longer economically able to earn income. The single mother with children are difficult in earning income. There are of course uh, you know families who are poor with children. So essentially, the 60,000 household is put in a poor category. The rent is extremely low. The rent can be as low as $25 or $40 Singapore a month, which wow. is about $30 US. And even at that low rent level, there is still a lot of arrears. There are still some families who owe you know, up to owe, but they will never be kicked out. Mm-hmm. Is there a homeless population? I imagine probably no. with not even with migrant workers. No, my, migrant workers actually are not will never be homeless because the employers have to be responsible for their accommodation. Uh, okay. Okay. So in a kind of census of homeless people, there's about about a thousand people who are who sleeps in the rough, mm-hmm. and among those, not everyone is homeless. Some actually escapes from home, uh, you know, just didn't want to be, because they have to share, sometimes, you know, they can't get along, they just uh, stay outside. And sometimes the weather in Singapore, as you know, is tropical, it's probably sometimes cooler to sleep outside than to sleep in a very enclosed small space. Some sleep close to their workplace because they got to get up bright and early in the morning. So, so, so homelessness is not a problem. Because the government keeps them, give them shelter at a very low cost, and even for free, effectively. In terms of the construction, these are high-rise buildings, 15, 20, 30, I don't know, 50 stories tall. Very, 40 stories. Very large buildings, yeah. And in the U.S., that's certain, as I'm sure it is, is there, in terms of construction costs per square foot, that's the most expensive housing you can build. Yeah. You explained how, uh, you know, at least land costs are very low in Singapore, and that makes sense. But how do you provide all of these homes, um, you know, in these high rises at relatively affordable prices? Like, is it standardization where there's just a lot of building the same things and the the construction workers are very familiar with this? Or, you know, are the contractors government employees or is it all private and, and the HDB just, you know, gives them the contract to build? How does all that stuff work? Okay, so uh, essentially, the HDB's main job 
is actually in the sort of land use planning of the entire town. Mm-hmm. The HDB itself used to have an, a fairly extensive architectural section where the designs of the building are actually made. It still has that to some extent, but some of the architectural work is now outsourced in order to also provide opportunities for local architectural firms to work. All construction costs are by private companies. Got it. The HDB doesn't build because it doesn't want to deal with the labor problem, which is massive, right? What do you mean by the labor problem? When you, when you are building 25,000 units of housing, the construction labor, the site, the, you know, the management of the actual building process is uh, way too much trouble for, <laughs> okay, the, yeah. for the bureaucracy to handle. Is that a, are the workers often foreign workers? Yeah, so, so a lot of construction workers are actually foreign workers Interesting. because we don't, Singapore has been short of labor since the middle 1970s. Mm-hmm. We, so we've been importing you know, foreign laborers from the region for a long time. I mean, since the 1970s. And currently, most construction workers are South Asian. And this is like a, get, a guest worker program rather than a... Yes, yes. They are, mm-hmm. they are migrant workers. They come in right. with fixed term contracts, two years renewable. Some of them have stayed on you know, 20 years but they do they will never acquire citizen rights. Mm. This is that is one of the moral problems of yeah. the country, which is you yeah. know foreign workers are based basically even lived in ghettos of you know uh, um, yeah, that was something that struck me when i when I visited Singapore was you know walking around the city at night and you do you do bump into vibrant uh, neighborhoods, but then I realized I think most of the people in those neighborhoods were not Singaporean citizens. Yeah, and, and just for, for, for my understanding here, are when we say 85% of, are we talking 85% of citizens are homeowners or 85% of, of residents of all kinds? I'm guessing it's the former. No, it's, it's citizens plus permanent residents. Okay, okay. Okay. Uh, and then, but these guest workers are not, uh, they, are, they live in dormitories and they are not allowed to bring their family. So they're essentially single person come and work. Mm. on contract, right? Okay. Uh, and partly because of the cost of foreign labor is so low that actually the, the low-end wage earners in Singapore, wages has been suppressed artificially because, because you know, you can always get foreign laborers to do the job. So, so that's actually a, 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 a serious... So the low wage in Singapore for low-end workers is really quite... It's, it's a political problem right now. But in any way, the construction work is always done by private company with essentially foreign labor force, right? So the, so the HDB really doesn't want to have that headache. Uh, and so it's completely avoided from the start. Now, for a period, I think increasingly because of material costs and so on, there's increasingly prefabricated buildings. Components are actually prefabricated on site and then assembled. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's cost efficiency kind of issue. But the architectural design has become highly varied as opposed to the early seven, 60s and 70s where they are very simple slab blocks, cookie cutter 
kind of uh, block. I mean, it looks practically like Eastern European housing estate. If you look at the 1970, you know, pre-1980 mm-hmm. ones. But now it's becoming more and more complex and more and more architecturally fanciful, so to speak. All right. So what happens is that each successive generation of public housing actually improves over the past generation. So the, so the public housing quality has been improving all the time. And this pushes the private sector to also compete in quality, especially since they have to sell at a much higher price. Right? So on the whole, the quality of public housing is, is uh, very good. Now we are already, the HDB is beginning to tear down all house, the, the flats that they built in the early 60s to the late 70s. A lot, of those, a lot of those early estates were built closer to the city, so the land value has improved a lot, tremendously. So they are demolishing those in order to intensify usage. Mm-hmm. Are those buildings more in the like ten to fifteen story range, and they'll be replaced? Yeah, and with they are usually forty like story or yeah, no more than fourteen, sixteen story. Now they are building forty stories in you know adjacent locations to re- relocate the the ones mm-hmm. that are being demolished. Uh-huh. Something that stuck out to me in your in your article was about how the new flats are much less expensive in many cases than the older flats, and part of its location and part of it's because the resale market is different from the yeah. from the new flat market. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the the what is it uh, buy sell repurchase yeah scheme. So so okay so I'll come to that. But uh, the pricing of HDB flat is actually pricing of new flat is actually uh, unknown to public. We don't actually know how it is priced. Mm. I was going to ask if if the price if the units are sold at cost or if they're sold at a loss or if there's a profit, it's just not known outside of the government. It's it's not known. In fact, are there are there educated guesses about whether they're losing money well, no, or making money? No, on it's, these? no. Actually, it's it's almost impossible. And it's actually sometimes there are some opposition politicians actually claims that the HDB is actually profit making rather than subsidizing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because new flat prices have been going up along with market development. So a flat, a same equivalent size flat in the eighties is probably fifty percent of what it is now, at the at the point of sale. Where we can see a subsidy is that the fact that the government provides a grant and loan to the HDB of up to one point five billion every year, and that's not recovered. Mm. So, so there is an operational cost subsidy for sure, which means that the, the system is not generating, uh, it's, it's inve- you know, recovering the total cost. How many units are being built in a given year? I'm like trying to divide the 1.5 billion by that just to see, a, <laughs> you know, per unit subsidy roughly. It, it, varies, it varies because depending on the demand. So currently, uh, because of COVID, there's a slowdown of construction. How about on average over the past seven years or something like that? On average, the HDB will build about 20,000 units a year. Okay. But there was a period where they built a lot less than that, which creates a lot of pressure, right? Mm-hmm. So again, I mean, the number of units to be built is continuously adjusted depending on demand uh, and so on, right? So the owner of a 99-year lease can sell the lease 
to another family who is eligible to purchase. So that flat is what we now call resale flat. And the resale flat generally has a much higher value than the new flat for three reasons. One is that it is locationally much better, closer to the city because they are older, because new, new housing estates tend to be further and further out from the center. Mm-hmm, right. So there's a locational advantage. Secondly, in a fully developed estate, all the social amenities like polyclinics, uh, schools, uh, public transportation nodes, shopping facilities, including light industry opportunity, uh, employment opportunity are in place. Mm-hmm. You know, so all the social amenities are in place. And thirdly, if you buy a resale flat, you skip the f- long three to five year waiting period for your flat. Mm-hmm. So the so the old flats fetches a higher value than the new flat. And the owner of the lease in selling the flat gets to keep the capital gains. They can then turn around and buy a second new flat. When they do that, about 6 to 10% of their capital gains is, is extracted as a levy by the HDP. Mm-hmm. And so, so you get two chances to actually buy subsidized flats. And that's two chances in your lifetime? Yes. The third flat okay. will have to be in the, in the, in the resale market. And you have to wait five years to sell after buying a new flat, right? Yeah. No, there's a best minimum res- residential period where you have to live in it for five years before you can sell, right? So what happens is that the, pri- the public subsidized flat has become a vehicle of pi- private accumulation of capital, mm-hmm. which is politically, morally problematic. Because in the early 1970s, you have to sell the flat back to the HDB. Right. Rather than in the private market and collect capital gains. In the Hong Kong public ownership sector, you know, within the first 10 years, I think you have to sell it back to the to the government. And then even after that, you have to split the capital gains with the with the government. Yeah. So you can see, right, the popularity of the system is that. Yeah, it's politically (laughs) popular. (laughs) You you are free money. Nobody hates that. (laughs) Exactly. But they do hate when you take it away, when you try to reform the system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so exactly. So, you, you know, I think, uh, so the housing, public housing prices have been increasing for the last 30 years without serious disruption. So, practically, capital gains on property has been highly democratized, so to speak. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because everybody has the opportunity to make gains. Yeah, I wanted to ask you in this in this moment about this uh, research I read by a Dr. Sin from Singapore. Yeah. I don't know if you know him about the ethnic quota system. Yeah, yeah. How how big of a deal is the ethnic quota system? And maybe you could just describe how that works. Okay, uh, since the population is practically dependent on the HDB for housing, because uh, unless you are you know among the top ten percent income, right? The housing policy becomes the place in which the government actually impose other social policies. Mm. You see what I mean? So the public housing becomes a carrier of other public house, other social policies, such as the ethnic quota policy you're talking about. I think that's something we see in the U.S. to an extent too, where we're trying yeah. to use housing to solve many other problems uh, beyond housing itself. Yeah. So what happens? 
what happened is that it, by the 1980s, the, the government observed that the Malay population tends to congregate into two or three specific housing estates. Mm-hmm. So in, in the government's terms, uh, a racial or ethnic enclave has been, is beginning to be formed. And it got nervous about that. Polit- as a, you know, it, it has all kinds of imagined political consequences like uh, racial you know, tension and all that stuff. So it, so it decided that to regulate the redistribution essentially actually of the Malay population. Mm. And it, so it introduced this so-called ethnic quota policy because the Singapore demographically is ethnically about 75% Chinese, mm-hmm. about 15% Malay and 8 or 10% Indians. Uh, those are the three major populations. So, so each block now has a quota of approximately the same proportion as the national level pro- demographic. Hmm. And a, a, what is a block? Is that a single building? Is that a, a group of buildings? A, a block of building, yeah, a single build. Every every block of building, okay, not just the whole, not just a estate, but every block of building has an ethnic quota of approximately. Yeah, and and an estate is like a like a town, many blocks of. I, yeah, yeah, because I when I hear like estate, I think of a, a, an individual building. No, no, and as no, no. But it's a, it's a different definition in Singapore. Yeah, it's a neighborhood. And yeah. a state is a is a is a actually a town. Yeah, uh, if it's big enough. So the ethnic quota essentially is a attempt to redistribute largely the minority population because you cannot avoid a Chinese majority with seventy five percent of the population Chinese. There cannot be Chinese ethnic quota uh, enclaves, right? We're enclaves everywhere. Right. So, uh, so essentially, is a system. So that creates certain hardship, because once an ethnic quota is filled, say you are a Malay family and you're trying to sell a flat, but the number of you know slots for Malays are already filled, you actually have to oh, sell yeah. it to another Malay person. So, which means you restrict your market severely if you are a minority. Yeah. That has become that has become a political issue. So what the government, what the BHTB now says, is that if a, if a minority, if a Malay family tries to sell a flat at a certain market level, and they cannot succeed in two years, the HDB will buy it from them oh, wow. at that market rate. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I use it in a in a class because I think it's such a fascinating example of kind of, you know, the the goal of integrating neighborhoods. Right. Is a good one, but then when it's taken to this extreme, I think it, it, it's it gets a little bit uh, negative con- negative consequences. Very yeah. serious, yes, yes. Just to, for the sake of, of moving on, I want to, you know, we have so many questions here. <laughs> um, we've introduced this idea of the 99-year leaseholds, but uh, I'd love to talk about them in a little more detail. You know, I think the the leasehold system, it it makes sense to me as a way to avoid concentration of wealth, for one thing. You know, without that, people would buy homes, they would pass them on to their children sort of indefinitely, but the children would already own their own homes in this system. Um, And so it's just sort of accumulating and it almost like can't continue because every household's going to own multiple homes and that just doesn't work mathematically. I'd be interested to hear you talk about, you know, an important part of this because the homes are the major retirement asset for the aging population 
the different strategies that the Singapore government has used to try to allow people to monetize their home because they get in this situation where they are house rich but cash poor and they can't just sell their home um, and live off that money because they have to live somewhere and and mostly it's all ownership housing. So how have they tried to address that problem for for folks? Yeah, so so you can imagine if you monopolize housing provision, you know, it becomes your responsibility for everything, right? Yeah. So you imagine the HDB has encouraged and the government has encouraged the entire nation to invest in public housing. They now have to be responsible of how to monetize the asset for the retirement years because a large chunk of your social security is now tied up in the bricks, right? In the flat. Mm-hmm. So the, the simplest thing is to say, okay, sell your big flat, move down. We provide, we build smaller flats for you. So you can sell your, uh, sell your flats, keep the capital, use that as your retirement fund. That is the simplest solution. Most people are not willing to do that. So what the government has done is allow the leaseholders to actually become landlords, which again is politically problematic because now... It's a nation of, it's a nation of homeowners. So how can anyone exactly. be a landlord? <laughs> no. So what happens is that if, a, if an empty nest uh, set of parents is able to move in with their children, they are allowed to keep the flat and rent out the entire flat for a live stream of income. Right. So their, so their monthly income is guaranteed, right? Their retirement income is guaranteed through the rent they can collect. That's, that's that, right? Right. You can see, though, how, how it breaks down. It's just you can't have 85% homeownership when people are landlords, become landlords. and increasingly <laughs> becoming landlords. Yeah. No, a third possibility, well, there's a reverse mortgage that uh, always a possibility, but it's very unpopular yeah. uh, because two things. One is with the inheritance question. Uh, parents still would like to think that they should leave something back for their children. So the lease is inheritable, okay? If, it, you know, if the parents pass away after 60 years, the remaining 39 years can be inherited by the children, right? Mm-hmm. But more interesting is to say that Assuming you bought a flat at uh, about 32 years old, and by the time you retire at, say, 65, you've only used up something like 30 over years of your flat. You still have about 60 years of lease left. Assuming you live up to 100, you will have somewhere around 30 years of lease unused. Mm-hmm. The HDB will now buy those 30 years of lease from you at market value and translate this, that sum into an annuity system that gives you a monthly income. Mm. So you can age in place a lump sum upfront and a monthly income to age 100 or 95. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great model, but it seems very much like a reverse mortgage, yeah. just kind of with more straightforward terms. <laughs> Let's not call it a reverse mortgage, but it's basically we're paying you to, to get this when you pass away. The, the difference is in reverse mortgage, you kind of have to decide when you might die. In this case, you don't <laughs> have to. You see what right. I mean? Right, right. You, you, keep, you keep living there. Better until, terms. Yeah. So there are, there are ways of realizing asset in terms of funding retirement, right? I mean, that's different mode. One is to sell, the other is to rent, the other, you know, thirdly is to sell part of your unused 
uh, unused uh, lease back to the government. But the, the most advantageous is to actually have the old flat demolished and be given a new flat. The old flat is compensated fully at market value, be given priority of a new flat to have lease start from year zero. Oh, wow. Okay. So like having your home being displaced and having your home demolished is like winning the lottery. Exactly. Okay. So the new flat, you know, is almost always in right in the neighborhood where your housing is being demolished. Mm -hmm. You move maybe, you know, 200 meters, 250 meters. But because the old flats are low rise, relatively 12, you know, 10 to 12 story, the new flats are 40 story high. So you can demolish a whole section, a whole, you know, several blocks and just house them in one new tall building. Right. Right. And so it's an absolute windfall. And everyone is hoping that their old flat will be declared (laughs) (laughs) for demolition. So that, so you see, so the HDB has to keep thinking of ways to actually for the investment to be realized for retirement needs because it has become an asset-based retirement system. Mm-hmm. Singapore seems to be a very self-consciously capitalist country. I think that I hope that's fair to say. Yes, yes. But the, yes. the, the housing market is basically a, a managed economy and for the most valuable asset in most people's lives. Because of that, the public housing program seems to put the government in a, in a precarious position. And we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but you know, if they build too much, prices of existing housing may fall. Homeowners will be angry because they're now less wealthy. But if too few homes are built, then there will be longer wait lists and prices on the private market might shoot up too quickly. And that could also affect the cost of building new housing and make it more expensive for first-time buyers. And if there's economic growth halts or slows, you know, there's all kinds of problems that can come from that. Tell us more about this tightrope that needs to be walked by the government. Constant vigilance of both supply and demand just seems so difficult to achieve. And if it's going to be managed by public agencies, it seems like it might only be possible where you have the kind of centralized and and single government control that you have in Singapore. So what do you think about that? Yeah, so... I mean, the HDB started in 1960, right? So we have about 60 years. And this program has been running for 60 years. The policy changes at different times, right? Uh, The policy has to keep changing to accommodate emerging issues. Mm -hmm. Like now with the aging population, the need to think about how to to monetize assets. Uh, So the HDB population is not... Monolithic, so you have to think about different age groups and different demands. So, the, given an aging population, the need for big flats actually is declining. The need to a smaller flat has increased, right? The need to realization to realize capital for retirement has become a serious demand. But it's impossible to reform the entire system. So, what happens is like you know, have an operating system, you need to continuously develop patches mm-hmm. when, whenever something arises. And when the patch doesn't work, it becomes a political issue and not just a housing issue. Because the housing system is so closely identified with the government, right? So, on the one hand, the government derives legitimacy from its prov- su- successful provision. But at the same time, the government is also the complaint bureau, right? <laughs> so 
all issues of public housing ends up being directed at the government and it shows up at the ballot box. So this is where I think, you know, the idea that it is just the, in spite of it, the single party dominant government is electorally sensitive. So for example, in 2011, when we have a huge influx of uh, migrant workers, housing prices went up tremendously because in the, in the previous five years, the construction, construction level was not adequate. So prices went up. So the government in 2011 election actually suffered the highest loss of popular vote of 40% and lose the largest number of seats in the election. So immediately after the election, the Minister of National Development, who's responsible for HDB, was changed. In fact, he was retired off from politics. And the yeah. new guys come in, changes a whole set of rules to you know, immediately intensify production, bring it up to 25,000 units every year, provide more cash grants to first-time buyers to get into the system. It highlights how how used to success the People's Action Party is that like only getting sixty percent of the vote is considered a, a political exactly. crisis that they have to respond rapidly right. to. Right, and they lose ten seats, and it was like you know panel right? <laughs> I mean, they can't handle that. Yeah, and then so they increase the rent, the grant, and the grant is very interesting because the grant supposedly help newcomers to buy flat, but it in fact also keep existing prices steady. Mm-hmm. Makes everyone happy. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I mean, to me, to me, the striking thing was how responsive the government was to the unaffordability of housing. I mean, that's something, you know, in the U.S., we have this mantra of keeping housing prices high because the, the powerful people own houses. Right. Um, and I think it's 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 taking a while for us to to try to reorient policies to make housing more affordable. But it seems like in Singapore, that was that happened pretty quickly. Yeah, because, I mean, it immediately will show up at the ballot box and the government being so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, intending to keep ruling forever, right, actually responds very quickly. So, so it is a constant tightrope. And this question of, as you, as you mentioned earlier, if you keep building, there will be excess flats. So the HDB is aware of this and therefore cannot actually continuously be, build new flats for new demand they have to actually encourage buying of resale flats. Right. Even though that has a higher cost. So a lot of that is done through the grants, through cash grant systems. And so like it's a total responsibility of housing needs. And also, you know, because the retirement fund is tied into the, uh, into the ownership, it becomes a management system that is beyond housing. It's almost Foucauldian, you know. The analogy that came to mind for me when I was reading about this was the Federal Reserve here in the U.S., yeah. where they have this dual mandate. And it's a dual mandate to maintain, quote unquote, full employment, as much employment as they can, but also keep inflation at or around 2%. Right. And these goals are directly in conflict in some ways. And sometimes to keep inflation low, you have to raise unemployment, at least, you know, give, given the tools available to the Federal Reserve and the HDB and even the Singaporean government has this housing policy exactly. to, to achieve similar, but they're they're trying to balance these two things, and it's just you never get it perfectly right, and you're always just trying to, to to balance them. Not only you cannot get it perfectly right, it's like the system keep generating its own contradictions. 
as you keep trying to solve one problem after another, right? Because the yeah. the patches are always contextual. There's not like a, there's a evil genius that sit there and thought out the whole system from the start. It's like you know, as you go, issues arise, right? So yeah, it, mm-hmm. so the aging population is something that you can't calculate in in 1960, but now it's becoming the 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 major issue to manage more than you know new family formation because family formation is slowing down, right? So a lot of the contradictions are systemic, systemically generated. And as I say, well, the only thing that HDB can do is to keep developing patches to uh, solve that problem. But hopefully it will not accumulate it to the point where it, the system crashed. Yeah. And as Pavo said, I think the, the, the fact that the government is able to be so responsive is really their, their superpower here. Right. Yeah. Com- competent governments can get things done. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. Okay. So last question here. This paper was published in 2014. There's been almost a decade of change since you wrote it. We talked a little bit about the swings in terms of oversupply and then undersupply that came about you know, as a result of Asian economic crises and the global economic crises and migration or immigration, how have Singapore's housing policies and its housing market itself evolved over these past 10 years? Um, You mentioned in the paper how the fertility rate has been below replacement level since the 1970s and the marriage rate is in decline or was in decline at that time. In addition to society getting older, that of course has continued. What do things look like now? What direction are things headed I think that uh, what is interesting is that there is some issue has emerged in this in this uh, private capture of public subsidy, right? And it has become a way of wealth accumulation that a lot of young professionals who can actually, with some parental support, buy in the private sector, will in fact buy their first flat in the in the public housing sector, mm-hmm. with the aim of selling it after minimum residential period and make profit to finesse their private sector purchase, right? Yeah. So this has become a serious political issue, especially since they will always buy at the higher end of the public housing estate, of the public housing, right? The, the rate of increase, uh, you know, price increase is also higher. So it's create so the HDB itself, has become an institution that generates income inequality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because a higher income buys higher flat, accrues, accrues a higher capital gains than the lower end, right? If you three-room mm-hmm. flat will accrue a lot less than a five-room flat. And I imagine there's just an inefficiency there too of people buying where there are new flats, not necessarily where it's closest to their work, which is just not ideal. And they're buying homes that are bigger than they need, which means yes. those homes aren't available to other people. Yeah. And not only that, so now that the flats are now 40-story high, some has incredibly great views of the whole city, unblocked views of the whole city. So those flats have now become million-dollar flats. So now uh, the newspaper regularly reports million-dollar uh, public housing flats being sold that were bought at half that price. Right? So there's a huge windfall profit. And the uniform profit goes to the one who are already relatively wealthy. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a uh, the it becomes a serious question. Have they considered like a, a, a you know higher capital gains on larger returns or something like that? Ah, so 
So again, so so the so the latest development is that, as I say, that some of the older the older buildings has now been demolished. New ones are being built, right? And these are closer to the city center. So now there is a new category called prime land housing, which is built by HDB, which is on locations that are either closer to the coast, which is potentially great view of the sea, closer to the city, uh, next to the mass rapid transit systems. All those places that are built now will have a 10-year residency period rather than five. Mm. In addition to that, even the second owner, in perpetuity, those flats are not allowed to be rented out. So you cannot be landlord of prime land housing. Yeah. So, uh, so that create, that's kind of puts a damper on, you know, using uh, or, or capitalizing on those prime land uh, locations, right? The, the first set of prime land housing has been announced, but it hasn't been built. It will, the waiting time will be five years uh, down the road, right? But already there are young people who are lining up for that, you know, expecting to, even if it's 10 years, they will, they are already thinking about, you know, profit, right? So first time buyers into the system are now constantly profit minded rather than home as necessary, uh, you know, uh, shelter. Now, it's a right? very similar shift to what we've seen over the past generation or two in the US, I think. So, so yeah, so it's become, you know, I mean, finance. So the public sector, housing sector has become a financialized institution, you know, like all real estate, right? So this, these are developing issues, right? That, that, as I say, you know, it will keep developing patches too. Professor Chua Banghuat, thank you so much for being so incredibly generous with your time. <laughs> we really, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. This was fascinating and I, I'm like constraining myself. I have a couple more questions, but <laughs> we've talked for a while and uh, you're gracious enough to come back. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been great talking to you guys. Twice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have a good day. Thanks again. Bye. You can read more about Professor Chua's research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Pavo is at El Pavo. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.